Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Advent to Lectionary for Liturgical Year B. Our superb guests this week are the cherished Tamara Plummer, who is from Brooklyn, New York, and is the founder of the podcast Pursuing Call. She is passionate about the intersection of faith and leadership development as we build a world that looks more like God's dream. The Reverend Lydia Buckland, who is from Marquette, Michigan, and is the canon to the ordinary for discipleship and vitality with the Episcopal Diocese of Northern Michigan. She is a mother who is passionate about living into our call toward reconciliation and justice. And last but not least, Brother Angel Gabriel, who was born and raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico. He has ministered in several capacities, but most recently as a diocesan missioner for youth and young adults, as well as a camp director. Angel is currently a seminarian at Seminary of the Southwest. He is a life-professed brother of the Brotherhood of St. Gregory, an Episcopal community of friars. Welcome, friends. Thank you all for being willing to be guests on the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you as we discuss Advent 2. What's important to keep in mind for Advent this year? Whenever Advent comes around, I get happy and excited because I like seasons. I really love the sense of anticipation and getting ready for what we know is happening with Christmas. But I also am a bit annoyed with the waiting. And I think about like those times in life where I'm stuck waiting, like waiting in a doctor's office or like waiting in traffic or waiting in a long line and just how frustrating and like powerless that feels sometimes to be in a time of waiting and how counter it is to kind of our instant gratification life. And so there's kind of this adjustment that I have to like physically take on of like, okay, calm down, like reorient. This is a, a season of waiting and of pausing and not rushing. I think it's funny this year that, you know, Advent 4 and Christmas Eve are on the same Sunday. And so it's almost one less. I don't many, maybe your churches are doing both services. Lots of our little churches in Northern Michigan are like, Oh, no one's going to come to church twice (laughs) on that day. So it's even more of like a cramped season. So I think that sense of waiting feels especially important each week of Advent. What if we get grounded? Hmm. I feel like there's a lot of chaos in the world. The world feels really problematic. Mm. Well, my therapist says this, and so I should take her advice. But, you know, like getting grounded, getting steady in yourself, doing all the things that we need to do to be prepared for the arrival of Mm. our guest, especially because the world is so hard. Maybe we don't have to wait as much as we need to be present to what is happening now and sit in it so that we're not swayed by the chaos that is the world. I like that. One thing that I've noticed is that um, waiting for me is very difficult. I struggle with with patience, but at the same time, since COVID and everything that has been happening, a lot of us have just are running and trying to run Mm -hmm. and like catch up and do everything that we did not do or we thought we should have done. And, you know, time passes by and we're not present. We're just running, running, running. And as frustrating as the whole waiting thing can be, it kind of pushes me to like, hey, take it easy and walk. 
<laughs> walk, try to enjoy the journey, take a breather, and stop being so hard on, on yourself or on others trying to do this whole catch-up. I'm like, there's no catch-up. You know, just do your best and learn from the past and, you know, don't push yourself so much that you don't enjoy the journey. Say amen to the learn from the past piece that you just said. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult because it's so traumatizing in a way. You know, people passed and people suffered. You know, we suffered. Our lives were uprooted from, you know, our regular thing. And it's like, oh, so what do I do now? I'm like, well, we live. <laughs> mm-hmm. What liturgical ideas do you have for Advent? Especially, I know, Lydia, you brought up the fact that Advent 4 and Christmas Eve are the same day. Do you guys have any ideas for that or for Advent in general? I was thinking about, I wonder what it would be like if you had like some sort of, maybe instead of Sunday church in the morning, you had like a dinner church or a brunch church where everybody just kind of brought like eggs and quiche and, you know, whatever. And and then you have, you do the readings and we eat together as sort of a, a Eucharist and then come back later that night for Christmas Eve church. I love that. And liturgical experimentation, like the great part of the liturgical cycle is, particularly for those who have traditional churches that have been doing the same thing every year, what might it look like to get your youth to make the prayers of the people for Advent or incorporate an intergenerational conversation in the liturgical Mm. process or invite stories of pain and triumph and not preach as the person that runs the church for all of that. Yes. <laughs> what are the ways that we can invite new voices into the church's doors during the liturgy? I love that. A lot of our churches, um, when we do our liturgical planning and we do a lot of ministry as entire communities, we make decisions together as communities. So lots of people come to our seasonal plannings and a lot of times we're looking at past liturgies that we've used. And so shorter seasons like Advent or Lent are great opportunities to say, let's try something different or let's try on. I love that language as sometimes the clergy person working with them to be like, okay, no, not everybody wants to move away from the, you know, traditional Lord's prayer. Let's try on something. (laughs) This is a start date and an end date. It doesn't have to feel comfortable comfortable, but people tend to be much more open for these shorter liturgical seasons. And there's so much beautiful language and poetry and resources around Advent, around waiting, around sitting in the dark, sitting in our feelings, you know, anticipating new life. There's a lot of great resources from Iona Collaborative. There are just so many diverse voices that we can draw on that I especially encourage our little congregations to curate some beautiful things during this season. I'm a big fan of Advent retreats and like days of reflection, even if there's just a couple of hours just to get together, share like a simple breakfast or a couple of pastries or something. You know, Advent for some of us is joy and waiting all at the same time. And for some people, it's an incredibly dark time. Hmm. It's a time of, oh my God, I haven't done these things this year you know, a time of regret. And for some is, you know, I can't afford maybe to give gifts so they feel guilty. You know, families, a lot of them struggle. Um, a lot of people just go into depression and, you know, the new year is coming. So that that waiting for some other people is almost almost traumatizing. So I think that the church can bring in a, a spirit of conversation and reflection. Hey, so what are we waiting for? What's on your heart? What is it that we 
might want to work out before the year ends because to me advent just keeps on on going it's a way of me getting ready for not only the birth but also the new year that is about to come and the anxieties that come with that hmm. liturgy is not always happening on sunday morning and so try on thanks for that language liturgical options that might not happen on Sunday morning and may not happen in the four walls of your building, even if it is cold. Hmm. Let's take the liturgy outside of our four walls because there is so much anxiety about desiring people to return to the four walls that maybe we first need to enter into other spaces for liturgical celebration Hmm. so that people know that the four walls is not only where God lives. And so that might be an opportunity, even if it is cold outside to go outside with those who are outside. And that literal call to the wilderness. Yes. Mm. I mean, I think that if there's any more clear beckoning outside the walls of the church, it is Advent to this place of, you know, where and it is cold or it's barren and it is a bit uncomfortable to actually physically be in that space and reflect together as community on how that feels. Mm -hmm. I love that picture that I have in my head of the four walls. Thank you for mentioning that, Tamara, because sometimes I think we focus on so much on what we're doing inside of the four walls that we don't ask ourselves, what is it that we're doing for them to take out of the four walls mm-hmm. and you know, for them to bring church home, mm. their interactions at work, mm-hmm. um, whatever sadness they might have in their heart. It's like, how do you take what we're doing from here and not just focus on we're doing this great. See you later. It's like, no, we're in relationship here. <laughs> See you next Sunday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not a transaction. You know, this, this is, this is family. I was thinking about Advent and like the time of the year that it falls on. And for like Indians or indigenous folks, a lot of them that winter when the snow's on the ground is the time to tell stories. And so maybe Tamara, that's a great idea of having other people preach and preach in the sense that they could come and tell their story about whatever. And I think this week's theme is peace. And so maybe tell a story of how they found peace or maybe a time they didn't have Mm -hmm. peace or maybe a time that they, you know, worked for peace. I wonder what that would look like. Especially when we're in a time of war. Mm. Yes. I think two of the calls in the scripture to make straight the way and to clear the path and For me, as someone who holds a lot of privilege in the church as an ordained person, as, you know, a diocesan staff person and seminary educated person, all these things, right, that give me like the authority within a church space to stand at a pulpit, I feel called particularly in making the way right to stand back, to step back and to make space for other voices. And so I think that call to allow other voices particularly those voices of those who aren't often given the space, is so appropriate for Advent and is even what John the Baptist, I mean, he was that unlikely voice that people were seeking out that was like, who is this guy that everyone is like so moved by that they're going out into this crazy wilderness to listen to him? And like, where are those voices in our communities that, as you said, Shaniqua, hold these stories that people are longing to hear or that are telling a different story, that there are truths that we might resonate with, even with, you know, a time of war and across differences of faiths. Like what are the, what, who are our interfaith partners who can come in and share stories of peace? How do we kind of 
break open these walls that have tended to be so narrow in terms of our little Episcopal communities mm-hmm. to say, no, we're something bigger. We're called to be something bigger, and especially in this time of Advent. Let's talk about the gospel. Who is John the Baptist to you, and how do you imagine his personality? I personally love John the Baptist. As a Puerto Rican, our capital is named after him, and our cathedral, the Roman, the Episcopal, they're both called St. John the Baptist, so it's it's in our seals for the country. I mean, it's it's great. I see him as that unlikely person that everyone probably laughs at. Hmm. He had this ridiculously amazing message to say, but he probably wasn't dressed the way they thought he should be. Sometimes like in the iconography, how he's presented with his hair all over the place, Hmm. how that all looked together. It it must have been like, wait a minute, who is this guy? But he has the most amazing news to tell. Hmm. And then also like the balance between how famous he was and known but also how humble he is too at the same time. Mm-hmm. That balance to me is just, it's kind of inspiring. It's like, how can you do that? How can you bring such beautiful news and be so well known, but not make yourself the focus of the news? Mm-hmm. It's like, you're carrying the light. Mm-hmm. You are not the light. And you're good at balancing both things. I'm like, wait a minute. I need to learn from this guy. Mm-hmm. Maybe not the whole eating the locust <laughs> with honey. <laughs> I'm not sure my fellow seminarians will appreciate me eating locusts at lunch with honey. And not taking baths. And not taking baths. I, I think my, my classmates will be upset with me, including my, the professors. But um, that balance of bringing the good news and not, again, not being the focus, but also letting that joy of the news kind of carry you forward, I think it's just inspiring. Hmm. I used to work at the Earth Institute at Columbia, which I think is now climate school or something. But there was a guy that would come to all the free events at every university, basically. <laughs> he was an unhoused, marginally housed, sometimes housed man, probably has some mental health stuff. Miles, love Miles. They call him the global bag of vagabond. All the students knew Miles. Miles always had some profound message to add. He is the unlikely person in the mm. room, right? That you're in this room with these diplomats and blah, 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 and like, quote, unquote, highfalutin people. And then Miles would have this message that was profound and interesting and amazing, off kilter from social norms, and sometimes more or less capable of engaging with other people. But I think of John the Baptist as kind of the Miles of the world. Hmm. The person that is just traversing the world with amazing news, if we take a moment to notice in the unlikely source. There are two people I like in the church. I like Miss Betty. She sits in the corner. Everyone knows who she is, but nobody notices that she's there, but she is controlling the whole room. And then there's like Miles, which is the not so clean, not so quiet person that comes into our church in the middle of service and says something wild but everyone's like wait maybe that person is not as insane as we all have decided they are when they walked in Mm. the spaces that you know the episcopal elite circles have often not embraced and i was in the diocese of southern virginia for their last council back in January, February, and was in a church in Colonial Williamsburg area. And it was, you know, it was Southern culture. And that's a, I'm a Northerner. And so I was a little bit out of my 
out of my comfort zone in terms of just how fancy everything was. And there was a gentleman who actually was already there when I had come in and I was preaching that morning and then speaking to them about shared ministry because they were thinking about doing that in their diocese. And he was sleeping across the pews with his hoodie on. And I just noticed, I mean, it was so obvious to notice, but no one else was acting like it was a big deal at all. And so I thought they must know this person. And afterwards at the conversation, and I did a little presentation on what shared ministry was, and he was raising his hand and he was contributing. And as I was getting ready to go, he said, wait a second, wait a second. And he walked around and he packed up a whole to-go box of food and treats and was cleaning the tables. And they said, yeah, he's unhoused. He comes, he sleeps during the services. Sometimes he shows up, sometimes he doesn't. And just the way that this community kind of wrapped their arms around him, similar to the Miles character, Mm -hmm. Tamara, like I'm always pleased when we are able to make that space and to welcome people fully in that way, because I don't think it often happens. I'm currently serving at a church in a little town that probably about half of the community is either neurodivergent or have some developmental different abilities. And, you know, it's time for communion. And I say like, all right, I'm going to do home delivery. Everybody raise your hand. And like, it's almost like a third of the folks I'm coming out and because there's all these wheelchairs and walkers and it's actually the church where we're hosting our diocesan convention. And You know, when I first started working with them and folks were saying, oh, we're going to start a new ministry support team there and they're going to, you know, be commissioned as a team and do ministry. And I thought, huh, how's that going to work? And I've just been blown away at the giftedness and the richness of that community and of the gifts that people have to offer when they're allowed the space and the privilege to fully offer their gifts and be themselves. It's been so eye opening. What you're saying makes me think that like so often the reason that John can bring the good news but not center himself as a light is because he is an unlikely character. Hmm. I find it is very easy in myself to become very egotistical very quickly when praised for my voice (laughs) because at some point someone decided that my voice was important and welcomed. And so... I wonder if the unlikely voices have more space and capacity to decenter themselves from the story of the good news in a way that some of us don't. In Lakota, our word for holy can also mean weird or strange. It's the same. And so we see difference as something sacred, not as something to be othered. And, you know, as you're talking, a lot of the holy people I'm using air quotes for a lot of the holy people we see in our communities are strange. I mean, you know, like their hair will go everywhere. You know, like <laughs> they do odd things. Uh, some of the most holy people are heyokas, which are like sacred backwards people. I don't know how to explain them very well, but they like dress backwards. I always imagine John the Baptist as a heyoka <laughs> and they are very odd, but you listen to them when they speak because kind of like your Miles character, you know, they they say stuff and it's very profound. And sometimes you have to like, read into it a little bit to understand what they're saying because it doesn't always come out quite you know quite the way you expect but what they say is very important and I always imagine John in that way I was talking to my friend about this reading and one of my one of my questions that he had and I was like you know you're right so if Jesus was without sin why would Jesus need a baptism of repentance that's an excellent question but at the same time is he just leading by example Mm. I mean did he really need to 
come here and suffer and do the whole thing right like in the flesh no i mean it was a it was an amazing decision that that he made and i think it just makes sense for you to start with yourself like hey this is a new era let's do this together i mean mm -hmm. i think it's just a symbol of unity like we're all in this together and i think it's pretty humbling that's why i think about baptism as community as being embraced by community as a beloved child of God, but as acknowledging others in community as beloved children of God. And, you know, there are some great Bernard Dozier teachings around like, you know, a child is not so full of sin that it has to be baptized to be saved in order to go to heaven. If that child mm -hmm. is never baptized, it's still a pure, beautiful child of God. Mm -hmm. It's not about the baptism doesn't make the child the child of God. Mm -hmm. It's just this claiming of that belovedness, mm -hmm. especially in community. And so maybe it's about that. And it's, you know, I'm stuck on the word repentance, the baptism of repentance, tying baptism to repentance is a tough one for me. I think I have to rethink of the word repentance to not be like, so full of sin as it's been weaponized or used mm. as shame or blame, but rather this idea of like turning towards God's dream for us in a way of living together that reorients us into what's possible. And maybe that's what Jesus was modeling, that if we all make this choice together, maybe we can live into this kingdom of heaven, like right here on earth. And I still think that's possible i think we have a lot of we have a lot of free will in that in how we choose to be there's that statement jesus is the way the truth and the light and it's often interpreted as you must believe in jesus to get access to the way the truth and the light but i have always thought of jesus as the exemplar hmm. of what it would be like to be human to inhabit the divine presence in human form. And that includes doing the communal celebrations and rituals that say signal to the community, this is what it feels like or looks like to turn again, to change your way. I almost think of it as Jesus accepting this public call and ministry by the community too. Mm. A moment to say, okay, damn it. Because Jesus also has free will, right? Like throughout Jesus's life, we see moments where he gets to choose to do something else. And he cusses out God and he is not really sure if he should step into the thing. Mm -hmm. He too must say, okay, fine, I'm gonna do it. Well, and sometimes the repentance, if it's the metanoia word, like the changing one's mind, maybe mm -hmm. Jesus was like working it out in his head about this call <laughs> and whether or not he's willing to do it. Maybe... He got baptized to change his mind, or maybe it's just being open-minded to whatever mm -hmm. God is calling him to, to do or whatever he's calling himself to do since he's mm -hmm. also God. That always gets complicated for me. It gets complicated. <laughs> so who was a John the Baptist figure for us right now, or who was somebody who calls us to reconciliation or repentance or new life? I will just be honest that I am struggling with sin, repentance, salvation language right now. Mm -hmm. I think it has been so weaponized in order to promote a violent understanding of how the world should work. Mm -hmm. All I have been doing for the past couple of weeks is like rereading all my liberation theology books from seminary and <laughs> trying to 
come up with a more um, liberative understanding of salvation, I would will call it liberation. So if I say that with all that caveat, my current John the Baptist is Cole Arthur Riley and her book, This Here Flesh and Black Liturgies is coming out in January. I'm just going to be a stand all the way because she is offering us a voice on Instagram for doing liturgy in a way that is communal and individual, public and private, hmm. liberative, and centers the voices of those on the margin. And it's not performative. It doesn't feel invasive. And somehow the message is always right on time with whatever I've been thinking about for the week. And so I just love Black Liturgies and the work of Cole Arthur Riley. Hmm. She's amazing. I think, you know, Stephen Charleston has been one of those voices that has been reaching out and touching people with his meditations and his more recent book, Spirit Will Meditations from an Indigenous Elder for folks who have particularly been wounded by the church institution or where the language is dangerous sometimes that we use kind of in our usual kind of jargon. I find the poetic nature of his words and spirituality and little reflections to be really welcoming and crossing generations too. I see like older folks kind of sharing and posting. And then it also speaks to younger folks who are longing to feel closer to God and to community. I don't particularly have a John the Baptist figure at the moment, but the closest that I can say would be starting to read this book called Forgiveness. And that's kind of like my project to kind of focus on, on forgiveness, not just on the world for being how it is sometimes to people like myself, but also forgiveness to myself in terms of, you know, when you make mistakes, not being so hard on yourself. I think that's kind of like the John the Baptist. And I, I love that there's always water involved in so many important things. I have an image in front of my desk that is, um, I think it's a Monday, Thursday image or something. It has like a little basin with water and there's these two hands like this with a towel across. And then there's feet, feet in like a circle. And that just reminds me, you know, it's foot, foot washing. And I see baptism close to it mm-hmm. too when we're washing ourselves, we're washing our hands so we can then go and have a meal together. Like I'm just cleaning myself and the whole sin language. I have a lot of trouble with it being raised in another denomination that guilt was like Hmm. the way to go. Mm -hmm. I still struggle with um, that guilt. I'm trying my best to see sin has an opportunity and has yet another chance for me to do better and to be better instead of a weapon against myself or a weapon against someone else, because that just completely darkens the light that we're trying to preach and, and, and especially, well, not just to preach, but to live, hopefully, and teach others by example. And I think that's what John the Baptist was trying to do with his own way of being. Hmm. He was just himself with no apologies mm-hmm. and baptize away. Just, mm-hmm. you know, wash, wash, wash. And do it again the next day and start it over if it didn't work today. And that's that's okay. But also not using it as, oh, well, your, if your feet are not washed, you shouldn't come to dinner. Hmm. That's not it. It's like, okay, fine. You don't want to wash your feet yet? That's fine. Come on in. Do you want to wash your feet after? It's an invitation, but it's not to close the door. It's just an opportunity. I think. Right. An invitation to say, come feel what it feels like to wash your feet. Like, 
so good to wash your feet and you have this opportunity to and that's okay if you're not ready yeah it's the drawing together I think that is kind of the opposite of sin I always look at sin as like the ways that we shut ourselves off from one another from ourselves I was reading this essay by Debbie Thomas I don't know if you all have read any of Debbie Thomas's work she has a she did have a blog called journey with Jesus and it's a different author now but some of her stuff is archived on it and she wrote sin is a walking death and the god who wishes to comfort us cannot do so when we are dead to god the world and ourselves i really loved that this idea of sin being like just shutting ourselves off and being like sleepwalking to the world around us and i think it's so easy to do to numb ourselves with all of the things that we have the opportunity to numb ourselves with alcohol or food or shopping or social media, all of it. And this opportunity to sit in it, to be present to the discomfort, to be present to one another and work through it together. Children under the age of seven, they say whatever they want. They tell you exactly what they need. They always speak the truth, even if you would like them to add it with some nuance and some grace. My therapist always says, Say what you desire, Tamara, and know what you desire and be present to it because then you can connect with other people to deny yourself the opportunity to speak the truth to people of what you need and what you can offer is to then commit sin in some ways, right, is to separate yourself. So I think toddlers are the best wild wisdom possible. I was thinking about almost the opposite end of the spectrum of that, like, the John the Baptist figures for me are sometimes like the aunties or the grandmas who may not be your auntie or grandma, right? Mm-hmm. But they're in the community and they will just kind of tell you mm, like, mm, don't be running over there, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, and it's like in one of those, when it's a very communal space, like they're all your grandmas and your aunties, right? And mm-hmm. and they'll all, and sometimes it's like, they'll tell you things and you don't really have to listen to them in the same way you might have to listen to your own grandma, but like they'll also kind of tell you secrets or they'll tell mm. you what's funny or, you know, all those kind of things I was thinking about. And then I know that I too struggled with the sin and repentance and all of that. And then, um, especially when I was younger, when I was Orthodox Christian, that was very difficult. I think there's all of this thing where it's like, this is a sin, like it's a specific thing. And if you do this, then this is how you make it better. And you must make five signs of the cross and, you know, whatever, all that kind of mess. And then I think like from the Lakota perspective, sin it's just being out of right relationship, right? What is right relationship with ourselves or with each other or with creation, with the creator? Mm-hmm. And one of our words for peace is wo Lakota, which is the state of being in right relationship with all those things. And so I was thinking about how that tied together. So let's move over to talk about Isaiah. I love this passage. I know there's a lot of, there's like a song that we sing sometimes in Advent about it, but what connections do you see between Isaiah and John the Baptist, right? They're both kind of prophetic voices in a way. I think the context of both of these readings is important that both were during a time of occupation where the people were under occupation and During the time of the gospel, it was the Roman Empire and during Isaiah. So it's this idea of speaking to people who are oppressed Hmm. about the possibilities. And so that kind of shifts it for me, too, to say, turn right the way to people who are oppressed. Well, they're not the ones who need to 
turn and right the way. It's the empire who's oppressing that needs to right the wrong. So this idea even of where do we find ourselves, where do we see ourselves in the story? It's often easy for me during Advent to say, oh, once I wait, everything's going to be great for me. I just need to get through the waiting and then I get the baby Jesus and all the presents and everything. And so I'm like imagining myself down in that low valley, right? Where like the valleys will be filled and the mountains will be toppled. And then it's a little harder to imagine, oh, maybe I'm the one up on the mountain that needs to be brought down. Hmm. I'm the one that has a little too much right now that I need more humility or I need to share more or I need to reevaluate kind of what's going on in my life. So just that question, even of in both of the readings, this idea that things will be righted, but what part of the story do I find myself in for what that writing looks like? Because whose responsibility is it to write the way? Like I've never really listened to this passage and thought a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. I don't know why I thought that somebody else was supposed to do this. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, go prepare the way of the Lord. I was like, oh, we are supposed to, we, the community are supposed to prepare the way of the Lord because we often can easily sit in a sin that is a personal individual sin. But what if, as you were saying, Lydia, what is the corporal sin Mm. that we need to prepare space for God to enter into? What is the right relationship making that is not about me, Tamara, because I drank too much yesterday or would have ate too many bonbons? Like, I don't think God actually sits around caring about that too much. (laughs) But I do think there are these ways in which we have created more disparity, more poverty post-COVID than there existed before. Hmm. What is the preparation and the lowering of mountains? What is... What is the equalizing of pay scales and adjusting to inflation and et cetera, et cetera. That is the making of the way and the writing that would help us to repent and be ready and prepared to follow the way of Christ. Because by doing so, we are following the way of Christ. The preparing of the way is the following of Christ, is the process of repentance, is the process of liberation, is the process of freedom. Not like, hang on, let's wait for everything to be pretty. And then Jesus is going to come and save everybody. Then it's going to be great. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> no. We are responsible for making it great, actually. One thing I like about this is um, the cry out. Mm-hmm. I take it as a permission to do exactly that. Mm. I'm like, I am filled with the stuff that I need to get out. I'm going to cry out. Mm-hmm. Like, cry out, cry out, all will be okay. Mm. And that is also part of preparing the way for God to come. It's like almost like God is trying for us to shed all those unnecessary things that we should not be holding up to. And that's how we cleanse the space. It's literally just having more space for God to take over, mm. you know, like unclutter your yourself, you know, cry out. You have the permission to cry out and say it and it's going to mm. be okay. And, and then lift up your voice with strength. This is one of those readings that make me kind of like jump. So I have to kind of calm myself down whenever I read it. I'm like, ooh. You could jump. Jump. Ooh. <laughs> it's great because we have that permission. Mm-hmm. We we have that permission. And I think that's how we prepare the space is it's just literally uncluttering ourselves and giving ourselves 
permission to feel that love in an unfiltered way. Just let it happen. Let God just take it over with. It's getting rid of some of that control. And I think that's why we have to kind of wait a little bit and have some patience because it takes so long to kind of get rid of that sense of control. Mm. <laughs> it's so difficult. So I, I think it's, it's the, the sin isn't there. It's, it's God is knocking at the door, but I'm like, well, if you come in, I got to do this, this, and this. <laughs> so you kind of crack it open. Hey, can you give me five more seconds? <laughs> it's like, just cry out loud and just let it, let it happen. Let God in. Instead of suppressing it down and being a very yes. good Anglican and keeping quiet about your pain and your yes. anguish. Because you, you deserve it. That's the thing. We got to understand that we deserve this. I mean, God, God is there. God wants us. God wants to be with us. And we're just like, no, I, I am worthy of this. And then God wants to be with us in anger and despair. Yes. Not just in, I am so healed. There's a, a woman's biography I was reading, and then she's talking about this Jewish practice of heat Buddha dude, where you go in the wilderness and just yell at God for 45. Like she said, for 45 minutes, she just yelled at God and cry and scream. And I've seen this in friends, like on retreats where, you know, we did quote unquote primal screaming and just like, oh guys, let's just like scream. And this woman just broke into heaving tears. And then afterward it was like, oh, peace. Apparently I had some stuff to let go. <laughs> just, just the cry. I love this crying out. Maybe that's a liturgical practice. I was just thinking that too. What a fun liturgical practice. I mean, not fun, like, oh, let's go do that. But like <laughs> something different to like, let's get out there and really like cry out. Like, what do we need to let go of? And even if like, you know, you got a crew that's not going to go out and cry out, like maybe hand out like index cards and be like, if you were to cry out, what are those things you would? <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's really powerful. I'm sitting with that because, you know, honestly, as I was thinking about us having this conversation today and with all of the fighting in the Holy land and the war and the unrest, like it, like everything feels so unsettling. And I was like, what if we fail? Like, this is the first time I've actually during Advent been like, what if we don't prepare the way? What if we can't get it together in time? I'm always just assuming like, Oh yeah, we'll prepare the way. And then I realized like God still comes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that new life still happens in the midst of it but sometimes maybe this idea of like fixing it all or getting it right is just impossible and all we can do is like cry out into the wilderness together but at least we're together and at least god's with us mm-hmm. we have that liturgical practice in lakota like and I, other tribes do it too it's called hamblecha which literally means like crying for a vision or crying and it's kind of almost exactly what you described tomorrow except we usually are out there for like one to three days okay <laughs> and so sometimes it starts off with that angriness yeah and you know the yelling and the screaming and the crying and then usually over the past like over the time you come to some sort of peace and you find kind of what you're looking for sometimes people go out there for an answer to something sometimes people go out there for discernment sometimes people go out there because they're angry or they're hurt and they need to heal. And it's very cathartic. I, maybe we need to develop a, a liturgy for something like that in the Episcopal Church. I wonder what that would look like. Who needs comfort right now? I was thinking about, like, it says, comfort my people and tell her that her term has been served. Whose term has been served? I feel like there's some people in our church 
who haven't been comforted. And, and what was coming to my mind was all of like this year, there's been a lot of like conversations about bishops and title four and all of that. And I'm thinking about like the victims who term has been served in the sense that they've suffered and haven't really found some resolution to that. But I think the people that need to be comforted are those who are losing power because it is hard to lose power. Mm-hmm. And if one is not comforted in that time and given space to mourn the loss of power, the retaliation is real right now. Mm. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I see a lot of, I will sit in my, my social location of Black women where we are like, I've gone to therapy. Like I got the sister empowerment videos. I have my sister circles. I have all of these resources to heal myself through the trauma and the pain of being a Black woman in America. And I see my brothers (laughs) not capable of navigating those spaces in this same way because they are losing power and not understanding how to be comforted through the loss of power. Hmm. And so I am wanting those who have historically been centralized, who might see shifts in the power dynamics of our world, be comforted so that they can mourn the loss of power. It doesn't eradicate the need for you to lose that power (laughs) so that we can all share in the wealth that God has given. But may you be comforted so that you may not retaliate is my prayer. Hmm. That's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah, that really, really resonates with me. It is the time of those voices that have been historically oppressed. I think with communication and media and what goes viral or what we all end up hearing, my feed is so diverse in terms of all of the different stories and things that I am constantly hearing where I think of, you know, when I was a younger child in rural Northern Michigan, like I didn't have, I didn't have access to the stories and to the truth that was out there. And now my kids are growing up in a time where they're hearing the truth. They're like very aware of what's happened and injustices. And it was so funny. My son brought home a worksheet on Indigenous Peoples Day and it was of Christopher Columbus. So the former Christopher Columbus Day. And it kind of gave this history of Christopher Columbus. And I, you know, but said, did you study about Christopher Columbus today? And he said, yeah, he's in third grade. He said, yeah, we had a debate over whether we should be celebrating Christopher Columbus. And I said, what did you say, buddy? And he said, I said, of course not. He enslaved people and wanted to kill people. Why would we celebrate evil? And I gave him a high five and said, yeah, buddy. (laughs) Like, I was so proud that like, I know he's probably heard us talk about it, but it wasn't a direct conversation. But now that's... taking place. And I know that's not the case in a lot of schools around our country, unfortunately, but for it to be happening here in smaller towns in Northern Michigan means it is happening in other places. And so like that power dynamic is shifting and that does make things uncomfortable for people. That is why we see the pushback of the banning of books, of the, you know, silencing of the violence, of the threats. Mm -hmm. That is the more that we see that shift happen, the more people kind of are threatened by it. And so that is really powerful, Tamara, this idea of comforting, not not necessarily to placate, you know, no. oh, poor baby, you're yeah. losing your power. But it is to say there are some needs there that I sure hope these people find the healing that they need to not cause more damage mm-hmm. and more harm. 
as they have to orient to this different social location where they can't take things for granted. Mm-hmm. When I think people experience a loss of privilege as oppression, like if you had mm-hmm. a privilege that you lost, you will experience it as oppression, even though that's not what's really happening. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of waiting for the, with the Episcopal Church stuff, even with the Title IV stuff and the bishops, I'm kind of waiting to hear those voices that say, all the bishops are being picked on. <laughs> like, everyone's going for all the bishops. And <laughs> just kind of expect that. One big mistake that we keep on doing as a, as a church is that we kind of mold beloved community in complete sugar. Mm. We talk about it like it's just this beautiful, perfect cake that was mm. very easy to make. And it is mm-hmm. always delicious. Mm. This is perfect meal. No imperfections, no blemishes. And it's like, beloved community is not always like that. Beloved community can be very, very nasty to some. Can trigger you, right? And it should be like that every once in a while and make you question yourself. I'm like, what am I doing? Really? Like, is this really beloved community? Like, am I really doing this? Or am I just telling myself that I am mm-hmm. so I can make myself feel better? Hmm. You know, like, do you see me as a Latino person? Do you see me as a person of color? Because if you don't, then what beloved community are we talking about? The Episcopal Church welcomes you. Like, are we really trying our best to reflect that? And I, I love the fact that you um, mentioned, Tamara, uh, the retaliation thing and the loss of power. Uh, Ms. Lydia, you also did the same thing. I always wonder, when, when we look at someone and we say, wow, I'm losing power and I see you as my enemy, are we really mm-hmm. loving that person? It's like, where's the love there? I'm like, shouldn't you be happy that I'm succeeding, that I'm moving forward? I guess it's just those parts of the beloved community that we don't necessarily like to talk about. And the one thing that bothers me the most is when we, when, when the church acts like, oh my God, I just did not know this was happening. I'm like, yes, you did. Right. Yes, you did. <laughs> you knew this has been happening for a long time, but it was not affecting you directly. Mm-hmm. So God forbid you actually have some empathy for your brother, for your sister. And it's like, no, no, no. Like when something doesn't affect you, you should pay as much attention as when it's affecting you directly. Because at the end of the day, it will come to you. You will have your turn. Mm. Just like everyone else. It's like, what are we really looking up for each other? It's a dangerous decision to live in beloved community Mm -hmm. because we know that there's so much change needs to happen. But we don't, we don't listen to each other's stories. We don't really see each other because we're probably just afraid. And instead of just sitting down and talking to people and getting to know people, and all of a sudden you realize like, oh, wait a minute, we're in the same boat together, aren't we? We tend to forget that. Us, the church, we make it dangerous to do our own ministry. Ministry is it's not just, you know, pretty sugar, nice cake and coffee on Sunday morning. Sometimes it's sitting in the corner with a fellow friend of yours that has been heard by the church in the middle of the rain and you just sit down under the water and just cry or scream Mm -hmm. or just sit in silence and hold their hand. Mm. That's part of the beloved community too. And listen to them yell at you. Yeah, have them yell at you. I mean, when I wear my habit as a brother, sometimes that comes with it. Mm -hmm. When someone is upset and you know what? I am glad that that person has decided to say something, even if it's embarrassing to me. I'm like, fine, curse me out. Tell me everything, because at that moment, I'm representing the beloved community. Mm -hmm. At that moment, even though it hurts, it's painful, but it has to be done. Mm -hmm. And sometimes yelling, wailing, (laughs) and just doing it out loud works. I sometimes do it. I sit in front of my crucifix and I'm like, yo, 
you need to help me. I'm having a bad day. You want me to serve the church? You need to help me, Jesus. <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> it works every time. <laughs> and Jesus listens to us, you know, and, and you get closer to really being beloved community when you do that. And Jesus is listening to absolutely everything we say. You know, earlier you talked about that this week is the theme is peace and actually chaos can yield peace, not provoke chaos so that you can center yourself in egotistical ways, just to say that to the people out there who think that. But if God can make a way out of any way, um, <laughs> I remember I had friends one night we were, I was at their house for dinner, Catholic couple, very devout, very loving. Their kid, they were arguing over their child was throwing a temper tantrum and they were arguing about what they should do because as a family, they wanted to sit together and be in community. And the father said, as we have a guest and this is disruptive to our experience of having a guest in the house. And so he wanted to remove the child so that the child could calm down. They did this back and forth for like 30 minutes of dinner. And as we wrapped up dinner and they were cleaning up, they said, Tamara, I'm so sorry you had to see us fight. And I was like, that's a fight. I want to be. <laughs> right. I want to be in that kind of fight. <laughs> Amen. Like, nobody was ever mean to the other person's personhood. They were in alignment about wanting to be together as a family. Hmm. They knew the baseline of what they wanted to achieve. They didn't know how to get there. And they were just navigating it. And I was like, that's. That's amazing. Give me that kind of fight and argument and disagreement because there was still peace in the house. I was like, I feel fine. <laughs> I have, I feel very welcomed in this family. I finally feel like I'm in your family. I appreciate that. <laughs> I love this piece at the end of Isaiah where he says, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother's sheep. Mm. Has there been a time when you have felt like you've needed to be gathered in one's arms or carried in one's bosom or gently led? Or has there been a time where you've had that experience? You know why I like winter? Because I get to use heavy blankets. Mm. Mm-hmm. It was some study. I don't know if it was real or not, if I was watching a random TV show, that uh, you have to have four hugs a day to stay sane. It's a part of our DNA as humans that you kind of need physical touch and hugs to stay sane. Vitamin T. Vitamin T. (laughs) And so not all of us have the privilege or the opportunity or the space or time or whatever to have that connective touch. So I think that's like just something I have to do for myself every day, even when it's a good day and I'm celebrating something. It's nice to just be held and hugged. This is why I hang out with my friend's kids, but don't have my own. It's because when I need that, you just go to their house. <laughs> and there is nothing more comforting. For me, the most comforting hug and hold is a like a kid that just wakes up from a nap or is, a, is trying to go to sleep and they just like wrap around you in this way that doesn't feel invasive or weird. They just like genuinely want to be in contact with you so that we can share this moment together. I think they're asking for to be comforted, but mostly I'm being comforted. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, sweetie. And they didn't like the, that kid just looks up and says, I love you. Mm. And you're like, yeah, now I know why people have kids. But <laughs> And then they cry and 
everything changes. But for that <laughs> moment, I feel like that's what I imagine in this passage is that mm. feeling of just like being cradled by a little kiddo. And so not only, I guess, is God comforting us, but we are comforting God, maybe. Hmm. I think of the times that I've experienced trauma and the traumatic loss of my dad in a car accident. And then my mom died of a lung disease. And, you know, just being in this space, I was young. I was like 34 when my mom died and I had, then had no parents at all. And this sense of just like being an orphan, but like I was an adult, but I was still an orphan. And like just this total, I mean, really talk about being in the wilderness. I was just like, how do I navigate life? Like, how do I feel so alone, even though I had my husband and my kids, but I was like, I'm now like the matriarch of my family and no grandparents. And, you know, I've talked to other people who have lost parents at a young age and they're like, you don't know until you know, like this Mm -hmm. sense of huge loss and emptiness and hole that you feel. And like, there is nothing else to do, but kind of stand in vulnerability and open yourself up and like say, okay, God, take it over. Like, hold me now. Cause I, Mm. (laughs) you know, I've, I don't have anything else. And there's a gift in living through that experience. And I'm not one of those like silver linings, like everything happens for a reason. God never gives you more than you can handle. I mean, it's total awful crap what to live through experiences Mm -hmm. like that. And that empathy and that shared compassion with others who have gone through it or for myself even is something that, you know, I read the scriptures differently after having experienced something like that. It's just so real. It's just, and you don't want anyone else to go through that. But then when you find out, it's like, okay, now I, now I get it. Now I, I hear that in a different way. I love the fact that hugs were mentioned. I was raised very, very huggy culture mm-hmm. in Puerto Rico. <laughs> it's, it's all about hugs. Um, and I completely agree to keep sanity. You, you need a couple of hugs. Um, I do love when people give you hugs that don't necessarily have to do with physical touch. It's really just a spiritual hug because they just showed you how much they love you, mm-hmm. even from a distance. Mm-hmm. Tamara, you mentioned um, kids. Um, I was a camp director in my diocese, Camp Stony, And every once in a while, when uh, I will send the kids to like, hey, it's time to play or it's time for class or service. Um, so usually when they were in a rush, they will accidentally call me mom. <laughs> and they will go from brother angel to like uh, see see you later mom and many of them never notice that they call me mom and i will be in the office of my computer and i'm like did, did that kid just call me mom and i will be called mom at least once a day by a different child and you know i don't know but that was and i never told any other kids this but that was a little hug every single time because i'm like you're comparing you're you're you see something in me Mm-hmm. that for some reason you're calling me mom you're not explaining anything i don't know why mm-hmm. i know your mothers and they're mm-hmm. wonderful and it's like you call me mom i'm like okay i guess i'm doing something right you know that's that's a hug mm-hmm. and and i love the fact that lydia you, you mentioned trauma we all need that we all we all need to find those ways of hugging those around us um in different ways maybe on the phone maybe through a text through a message, through sending a postcard. Uh, someone dropped off salsa the other day at my front door in, in here in my apartments and seminary. That was incredible joy. I mean, a little bottle of salsa. I mean, you just never know what, what causes people joy, right? Has has a church we need to do that for for each other because we're 
we are thirsty for for love mm -hmm. because we you know we're having difficulty with even loving ourselves mm. then you know we we need we need a, a a reminder that we are that we are love that we are creations of god that we are a re reflection of jesus it's just you know the world is kind of it's kind of weird <laughs> and you know just makes a good job at reminding us or telling us that we're empty and and we're not we're we're filled with love hugs through other means is i think is quite wonderful and the kids do it so freely mm -hmm. you know they do it so freely they don't ask permission They just, they're just grateful at that moment and they let you know and then they're about their, their business immediately. <laughs> you know, they don't think about it. They just give you a little piece of love and they don't even notice that that's exactly what they did. And here we are as adults. We think we know better, right? And we have to think about it so much to compliment each other and to remind each other that we are creatures of love. One of the things I started doing was writing letters to friends, even if I texted them to make sure that they got the letter. <laughs> But just the handwritten note that wasn't virtual always felt like, like when you get that real mail, it definitely feels like a hug. Mm. So I will commission people off to write a letter to somebody. Nice. I was thinking about like the auntie, usually like an older woman, although I have seen guys do it too. Where like if you're the first, this is your first time at a congregation or, you know, maybe you're a visiting person and they kind of, I don't feel like a mother sheep. Maybe I do feel like a mom sometimes, but like, you know, they're, they're, they're gently leading the mother sheep or they kind of grab your hand and they'll be like introducing you to the different people, you know, and they'll be like, oh, this is the blah, blah, blah. And they'll be like, oh, all these potato salads are wonderful. And then they lean over and whisper in your ear, but don't eat this one, da -da, you know, and they'll like do the different things. And what tips do you have for preaching Advent to lectionary? motivate people to or inspire them to see themselves in john the baptist in that freedom that john the baptist shows hmm. that freedom to be himself and not really care about what other people say and just let them find that joy within themselves and just express it with no fear and just you know give them permission to be themselves because sometimes some people think that the church should give them permission to do this and i think we should and the pulpit is such a beautiful and dangerous instrument it's an instrument that can make your faith incredibly cold or inspire you in incredible ways so you know use this cycle especially this gospel and, and story to inspire people you know be you i may have said this before on this podcast but One Sunday, our priest had us pair up during the sermon and share a concern or maybe something that one needs comfort for. Mm. And then we would pray for the other person that uh, we talked to during the sermon. And so she framed out the conversation. And I think this is a perfect moment of offering a time to frame repentance and forgiveness and sin in a way that is a little less accusatory and narcissistic um, and then offer people an opportunity to say, what is it that you want to forgive yourself for? You know, what is something that you need comfort for and how can we as a community hold and pray with you together? That if that the sermon is phrased in an action oriented way, or what is something you need to cry out about mm. that I can pray and offer you space for It might be a more holistic way of preaching on that Sunday. I wonder how we use that space 
on Sunday or whatever, whenever it is that we come together to worship as kind of a true wilderness outside of our everyday life. I think more and more these spaces of worship, of kind of sacred space and time together are are rare opportunities in our lives to kind of set aside the distractions and to be present in community. I don't see those community places happening so much in our daily lives. And so to really kind of create this wilderness space of being present and sitting and waiting and to create that safe, brave space for crying out and for taking off our Sunday best and just sitting together to be vulnerable with each other. I think there's an opportunity for that and it's hard and it's scary and it might make people uncomfortable, but maybe that's the point of this season is to sit through that discomfort. Sometimes it takes the captive audience to push a community of folks into that space. So I would encourage folks to kind of take that risk and see if people will go there with you to have a different kind of experience. I think we need to be open to telling people directly, what can we do to love you better? How can I love you better? We don't ask that question enough. How can I hug you better? How can I love you better? How can I be present for you? Mm-hmm. What can the church do to love you better? Mm-hmm. I think it's a perfect time for that. Perfect time. I was thinking about Tamir, what you said about having people who don't typically preach, preach and doing some storytelling piece. Lydia, as you were talking, I was thinking about, I wonder what like guerrilla gospel would look like. And guerrilla meaning like, you know, on the spur of the moment, like if we gave people assignments, they had to go live out the gospel somewhere during the week, like had to be like the prophetic John the Baptist voice in the grocery store, or you know what I mean? And then the next week, I'd want to hear the stories of what happened when they did that. What would it look like if you were the voice crying out in the wilderness or gently leading the mother sheep or whatever? I like that. Thank you so much for being willing to share your wisdom and your stories. Uh, I always appreciate it. I know so do our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Tamara, Lydia, and Amhal. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you experienced hope in listening today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. For 100 years, the generous donations of Episcopalians and supporters to the Good Friday offering have helped the Christian presence in the land of the Holy One to be a vital and effective force for peace and understanding among all of God's children. A lifeline of hope in times of genuine need in years past, the Good Friday offering continues to support churches, medical programs, and schools today. Now more than ever, we celebrate the centennial of this historic fund. Your support is needed. Give online at iam.ec slash Good Friday Offering or text GFO to 91999. The Good Friday Offering, celebrating a century of gifts and rejoicing in 2,000 years of good news.